1: I need somebody help. help not just anybody help. Help. you know I need someone help. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences you will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing now here is
2: your host Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Athlete, your host. I'm a physician trained in Britain, as you can tell from my accent. I've worked for many years in Canada and also with various colleagues in the U.S. I'm retired from medical practice, but I'm still working in healthcare research and development. For me, what I see in family caregiving is one of the most important supports for healthcare right across the world right now who are family caregivers. They are the people who provide care to family members suffering health challenges. Family caregivers are the people who go on providing care when all the professional caregivers, like I used to be, have gone home. The healthcare systems of many, many countries, including ours, rely more and more on the mostly unpaid help of family caregivers. And here's where I make my confession I'm an activist for Family Caregiving, which explains the name of the show, Family Caregivers Unite. Now, the episode today is Professionals with Significant Disabilities, How They Balance Health, Caregiving, and Careers. Our two guests, Dan Thompson and Dr. J.R. Harding, are successful professionals. Both have significant disabilities for them balancing health, caregiving, and career is their continuing challenge. They're going to share with us their experience and their advice. Now, let me introduce them uh, with some of their backgrounds. First, with Dan Thompson. He's a registered rehabilitation professional, registered vocational professional, and certified life care planner. In 1980, he was involved in a serious car accident. This changed his life forever. He was permanently disabled. After discharge from hospital, he founded the London and District Sports Association. He played wheelchair rugby. He eventually coached the Ontario wheelchair rugby team to win the Canadian championship. Then, through a series of responsible jobs in government and business, he learned to be a manager and a business executive. Twelve years ago, he started what is now a prosperous and successful international practice as a vocational rehabilitation consultant. With that work, he helps people with things like serious burns, amputations, brain injuries, orthopedic injuries, spinal cord injuries, and congenital disabilities. Dr. J.R. Harding worked full-time for the Agency for Persons with Disabilities, His job is external affairs manager. He currently shares his expertise and experience with the U.S. Access Board, the Commission for Transportation Disadvantage, and the ABLE Trust Board. He often serves as a disability expert to guide private business and other stakeholders around the nuances of the Americans with Disabilities Act, and he guides people around the challenges of independent living. He served former President Bush, Governor Crist, former Governor Bush, and former Governor Childs. And throughout, he served his fellow disabled citizens. He's also served the Election Assistance Commission, the Governor's Commission on Disabilities, the Florida Building Commission Waiver Council, and the former Governor's ADA Working Group. He's a graduate of Leadership Tallahassee, Class 19, and Leadership Florida, Class 28. He frequently presents at national, state, and local conferences about the abilities and needs of persons with disabilities and the obstacles facing them. Welcome to the show, Dan and JR.
3: Thank you very much, Gordon. Thank you, Gordon. You're welcome.
2: Now, I'm going to start. By asking you both the same question, starting with starting with JR, what what is a significant disability? JR,
3: a significant disability um, is defined at the federal and state levels through the various rehab programs, but it ultimately boils down to the individual's interpretation. Generally speaking, a significant disability. um, involves multiple parts of your limbs, cognitive, or other that would necessitate a minimum of three vocational services occurring simultaneously. That could be independent living, education, and professional skills and services all at the same time. Right.
2: Dan, speaking from a Canadian perspective, what's a significant disability?
4: Well, I think if we look at the World Health Organization, there's a uh, a vast difference between a significant disability and an impairment. And I think uh, if I can speak firsthand, although I have a quote-unquote severe disability with high-level quadriplegia, um, I do not let that impair me or prevent me from trying to live life to its fullest in all activities of daily living as well as in my professional career. And I think that's the big difference between a disability and an impairment.
2: Right. Let's go to the next question, which really flows from what Dan was just saying. What does a significant disability mean to you? Dan, you've already partly answered that, but please carry on. What What does it mean to you to have a significant disability?
4: Well, because I deal in the litigation arena on a regular basis, in that I offer litigation support to uh, uh, personal injury lawyers as well as to insurance companies, what we're looking at is uh, um, catastrophic impairments. That's what the legislation usually talks about. So as Jr. alluded to, what you're looking at is uh, people who have either spinal cord injuries, amputations. Um, You're also looking at uh, uh, brain injuries. And uh, there's a whole host and a whole mechanism in which to determine what a quote-unquote catastrophic injury is. And, however, having that doesn't necessarily translate into preventing you from living life to its fullest. And I've always believed that if you look at the glass half empty, glass half full, that in reality, you know, things are more full than they are empty, depending on your perspective and, as J.R. alluded to,
3: how you see things or how you perceive.
2: Right. JR. what does a significant disability
3: mean to you? Well, I would agree with many of the principles Dan has just articulated, but I would take it a step further. A significant disability, in my viewpoint, would be anything physical or psychological that requires you to, let's say, pre-plan, pre-organize, and balance beyond that of someone without any kind of known, recognized, or accepted sets of challenges. And so all it just means, in my view, that in the game of life, you just have to play a better game, poker game than someone else because just because you're not able to walk doesn't mean you're not able to contribute. Just because you're not able to see doesn't mean you can't navigate the web uh, page in the internet and the information technology world. And so a significant disability, in, in my eyes, just means that you have some both overt and interpersonal nuances that may take, for example, water skiing or earning a living or getting up every day a little more challenging than the next person.
2: Right. Now, we're going to be going for a break fairly soon, so this next question, um, please, brief answers. How how do you describe what happened to you to cause uh, the significant disability? JR? Oh,
3: my first one, I tried to walk away from a physical fist fight my senior year in high school, and while doing the right thing, I was thrown on the ground and severed my spinal cord at the C5 level. The second time, I went through a car windshield at 75 miles an hour and severed my spinal cord for the second time.
2: Dan, same question. How would you describe what happened to you?
4: Um, I was uh, working on a farm that day, Uh, wanted to build up my muscles and become a professional football player went home, asked my friends what we were going to do that evening, and uh, uh, basically within an hour I sustained a severe spinal cord injury and, and involved in a car accident.
2: you both been through an experience which um, is all too common to, if I may put it this way, young men who lead active lives. Um, what are your comments about that you would offer as a kind of advice to people who've just been through this experience, who are just surfacing from it. What's your quick comment to people who are in that situation? Um, JR, first of all?
3: Well, in my case, I would say for anyone going through this now, find a a goal that you have not yet accomplished and make that the target. That just because... uh, Life has ups and its downs, and it's not fair. It is worth living every single minute of it.
2: Dan, same question, advice to somebody who's just starting out on the road that you've traveled.
4: I would say research is power. Um, for example, when I was going through my own rehab, you learn about things such as pressure sores, how to deal with the um, you know other medical conditions. But one of the most powerful messages I ever received was from a group of individuals who came back to advise individuals such as myself going through the rehab um, how to deal with certain situations. Uh, For example, uh, I wanted to know if I went out on a date, what would happen. Um, I didn't want my date to cut up my meal for me or to prepare things. And what they suggested was that uh, they would either have the chef and or the waiter or waitress cut up the food beforehand And to me, even 30 years later, because I sustained my spinal cord injury back in 1980, was one of the most powerful messages I received early on because it was a ray of hope that life wasn't over and that you could continue with your life and have a more normal date and not put that dependency on others.
3: Gordon, could I jump in real quick? Yeah. That is a beautiful segue to your first question of what does it mean to have a significant disability. Pre-planning, pre-organizing, and playing your cards better than someone else. I, too, use that same tack, as Dan has articulated, of having the chef or the waiter cut my food at a restaurant because I'm there with my wife and we're paying for this service. They can cut the food.
2: Great great now it is time for us to take a break we're going to carry on with this um discussion afterwards um this is dr gordon Ashley, and my guests are dan thompson and dr J. R. hardy you're listening to family caregivers unite on the voice america variety channel please stay with us we will be back
5: Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling voiceamerica.com.
1: Are you ready to go green? You've asked,
5: and we've heard you. Voice
1: America presents the Green Talk Network.
5: The leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Help, you know
1: I need someone. Help. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to Doc G at mymonami.com. That's Doc Letter G at dot Y M-O-N-A-M-I.com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Dan Thompson and Dr. J.R. Harding. Our topic is professionals um, with significant disabilities, how they balance health, caregiving, and career. J.R. and Dan, you, you both have your own businesses. I want to talk about these. First of all, I'm going to start with JR. What are the kinds of services you actually provide? Who are your clients? And here's a question: Are you two in competition with each other?
3: JR, first. Well, first I would say no. I'm not in competition with Dan. Rather, we are healthy partners in the in the business arena of independent living and and disability self-sufficiency. My clients uh, vary anywhere from uh, the neighbor kid who just got injured the other day to uh, private business who uh, was sued under the Americans with Disabilities Act or uh, universities, colleges, and professional conferences that are trying to shape the delivery of services to greater enhance the likelihood that the 54 million Americans are able to move from Dependency of government services to self-sufficiency of a uh, law-abiding, uh, contributing member of society.
2: Dan, services you provide, your clients, and whether you think you're in competition with JR.
4: Sure. Um, as you alluded to in my introduction, I am a certified life care planner, a registered vocational professional, and registered uh, uh, rehab professional. What that means is that I provide litigation support to personal injury lawyers and insurance companies. Typically, someone in my position would normally um, be a neutral person. However, I find that in my practice, uh, I would say that 80% of my work is on the defense side. In other words, I'm usually representing the insurance company to ensure that people get what's reasonable and necessary and not uh, what's greeny and over the top, as I would put it, or, um, you know, basically uh, uh, someone who's going to exploit the system or try to get more than what they really need. And it's been my firsthand experience that money doesn't necessarily make you happy. Uh, You obviously need certain equipment. You're going to need wheelchairs or or whatever your disability requires. You're going to need caregiving, which is obviously the topic that we're talking about today. But I think if you have... um, Uh, more money, then you're not going to earn a living, and as such, you're not going to appreciate the things that come your way. And so um, I would agree wholeheartedly with uh, JR that we're not in competition with each other. I think what we're trying to do from perhaps slightly different perspectives is improve the quality of life for people with disabilities and uh, hopefully give them what's needed to allow opportunities to explore Uh, Everything from social uh, activities to uh, business pursuits, which is what we do on a regular basis, and everything else. And for me to get to where I am right now was a combination of of, uh, activities. Uh, I've had other businesses in the past that perhaps we may talk about later uh, that has uh, been able to allow me to become a certified life care planner registered vocational professional, and registered rehab professional.
2: Okay, that's the, really the next question, which is going to be, again, to both of you, starting with Dan. What got you started in, in getting a business of your own? And particularly, what are the things that gave you and maybe still give you the greatest challenges, Dan?
4: Sure. Well, when I first sustained my uh, spinal cord injury way back in 1980, I was 16 years of age, and didn't have a clue as to what I was going to do for the rest of my life. One of the first things I was able to uh, uh, try was radio broadcasting. And although I haven't pursued a career in that area, that experience has provided me with a skill set on how to uh, use my voice, how to uh, use the media in which to uh, portray a positive image for people with disabilities. Um, I also had the pleasure of working in the in the provincial government, placing people with disabilities. and obviously uh, that was a uh, an eye-opening experience to teach me some of the uh, disadvantages that people have in marketing themselves to potential employers. I've also acted as as a consultant selling voice recognition systems. We set up a company that went public on the Alberta Stock Exchange, uh, raised fourteen million in the public offering. And again, I was able to use my disability in certain situations. For example, when we try to raise the first couple million dollars, I remember we had a presentation for Mr. Frank Mersch, who was the president of Altamira at the time. And I remember his entourage uh, coming into the room. They told me that I'd be lucky to have two minutes of his time. So I strategically placed myself uh, away from the desk. And as soon as Mr. Mersch entered the room, I said, hey, Frank, get that chair for me, would you? And, of course, uh, that sure got his attention. Now, if I was able-bodied, my response may have been perceived as being, you know, uh, maybe not a very nice person. However, getting his attention, showing him, um, you know, the benefits of using voice recognition technology, he had to be dragged out of the room an hour later, and that was the uh, start of getting the seed money for our public offering and everything else flowed from there.
2: Jayon? Same question. What got you started? What are the things that give you, maybe, uh, certainly gave you and maybe still give you the greatest challenges? Dan?
3: Well, thank you. Mine is similar to Dan's beginning. I was to go off to college and play American football at a six foot five individual, and life changed. Back then, there was no um, equality of access, no protections under the law. And I went to college really just to learn how to read and write because um, I didn't study very hard in, uh, during the primary school years. Coming out of college, the uh, teaching, like Dan, there was nothing wrong with my voice. So I thought that uh, teaching school would be an appropriate, meaningful, respected vocation Um, within, within our systems, and it was the only environment that was somewhat accessible. And as I was completing my undergraduate degree, the Americans with Disabilities Act occurred, and they needed individuals who could go from the private sector to the disabled sector freely and be accepted in both domains extremely well. And so perhaps I had a little luck on my side, and perhaps I had my own little personal challenges driving me because I knew I belonged in the community and would not be relegated to uh, the back of the door or through the kitchen or could not go to the football game. So having said that, I then began my career teaching but the uh, limited remuneration within the teaching field was not adequate enough to meet my daily living needs and pursue some advanced degrees. While pursuing the advanced education, I was, was able to segue into public policy, having been accepted by those on the able side of the world, to introduce them, hold their hand, and walk them through the world of disabilities and basically allow them to know it's okay, no one's contagious, and we're certainly not going to bite. And I have subsequently found a very prosperous domain for me to use my gift of as a community resource to unite the world, tear down the barriers, and have a more inclusive environment. Um, In terms of You know, what are my day-to-day obstacles? Mm -hmm. Well, it's just maintaining my health, maintaining my core dependencies so they are really a a small part of me and that when I'm breaking down barriers with new um, domains in the private sector and, and creating venues for other people with disabilities to show their abilities, I think it is the hardest part not to overwhelm the less informed environments with all of our baggage, our wheelchairs, our voice-activated computers, our personal care assistants, and so forth.
2: I'm going to ask you a question that flows from things both of you have been saying. What are the things that give you the most job satisfaction, and why do they give you that satisfaction? Now, again, we're, going to, we're running into a break, so fairly brief questions. JR, first.
3: For me, the, the greatest satisfaction is knowing that I've changed the world for the better and that any problem that I have been able to correct is not my problem. It's a broader community problem and thus have created greater access. And I'm able to see it every day in my community, town, state, and nation.
2: Dan, same question.
4: What I would say the most satisfaction that I uh, receive is pushing the limits. Um, I've always used the analogy that if you shoot for the stars and you get to the moon, you've gone pretty far, whereas if you only uh, basically shoot for you know, the sky, then obviously uh, you've got a shorter drop. So I've always tried to push the envelope, try to uh, uh, do the best I can with what I've got, and uh, I think it's brought me pretty far in life.
2: Let's just, again, this is terribly brief because we're running into the break. Quick words of advice from you both for people who are thinking about their own businesses as a way of life. What, are the, what is the sort of brief advice you would give them? Dan, first.
4: I would say uh, do as much research as possible. Understand what it is that you want to do. Uh, most people uh, don't have a clue uh, as to how to run a business, and usually it starts from a hobby or an interest that you have, and then uh, it's a matter of developing, I guess, hopefully, who your target audience is going to be. But knowledge is powder, and the more knowledge you have, the better off you're going to be.
3: Jay your quick answer to that advice? I would agree. Dan um, is spot on. You must follow your bliss. Because if you're following your bliss, your enthusiasm for your work will never uh, tarnish. And understanding what it is you want to be able to do. And then for those of us with significant disabilities, you have to be better at what you do than somebody else.
2: Okay, we're going to go into our break now. It's time for us to pay the rent. Um, this is Dr. Gordon Averley, and my guests are Dan Thompson and Dr. J.R. Harding. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, and please stay tuned. We will be back.
5: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: A merchant of hope is someone who has a positive impact on those who have either lost hope or never had it. Tune into a powerful program designed to provide the understanding, motivation, and the passion needed by caring and committed Merchants of Hope. Join Dr. Crystal Kirkendall each week for an inspiring program, Magnifying the Power of Merchants of Hope, live every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
5: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You know I need someone, You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back our listeners, to Family Caregivers Unite, and our two guests, Dan Thompson and Dr. J.R. Harding. Our topic is Professionals with Significant Disabilities, How They Balance Health, Caregiving, and Career. Let's now talk about the caregiving aspect of this balancing. And I'm going to ask specifically the question, starting with J.R., what caregiving you use, how dependent
3: on it are you, and who organizes it for you? JR? Well, thank you, Dan. Um, since we need to be honest, I'm going to be honest. I am very dependent on others. I cannot shower, shave, go to the bathroom, dress, eat, or otherwise get ready for the day without somebody's help. I have a team of five who balance my daily needs from professional work to daily care. I have two primary personal care assistants because you cannot afford to have all of your eggs in one basket. People get sick, things happen, people can't travel all the time, and then the final piece about it is I organize and manage my care and create a seamless team where all the players are interdependent, interreliant, and honest and respectful for one another so it is not a burden on any one person.
2: John, same question. Caregiving, you use
4: your dependency and who organizes it? Um, I organize it all myself. Typically what I do is I try to hire people who hopefully don't have much experience in this world so that I can uh, hopefully mold them and shape them into the type of care that I'm looking for. Um, Luckily, I'm I'm fortunate enough that once I'm in my wheelchair and food is prepared and set out for me, I am independent and can get at it myself. So uh, really, I only need a few hours of care in the morning and a few hours of care in the evening to help get me back in the bed and that sort of thing. But similar to JR, without those two hours in the morning and a few hours at night, um, I would be in in, uh, a lot of trouble and that I do physically need help to get up and dressed and take care of my personal care needs.
2: Right. Now, the show, as I said when we started, is about family family caregivers. So I'd like to ask you both about your own experiences with family caregiving. So starting with Dan, what is or has been the role of family caregivers in your lives?
4: Well, I'm very fortunate that I have a very large family. I have seven sisters and one brother. And I have had a lot of support over the years. Um, However, having said that, when I first had my accident, the medical profession thought it was a good idea to have my mother perform my own care. And when she was doing personal things uh, with me, I don't think that was very appropriate. I think it's more uh, advantageous to have the personal caregiving outside of family members this way Basically, your life is separate of them, and I don't think the dynamics of being a father, being a husband, being a mother, uh, whatever the case may be is compromised as such you know with that situation
2: JR, same question
3: well I'd like to first piggyback on Dan's um appropriate observation of separating caregiving from family I too separate those two dynamics because it can significantly interfere with the quality of relationships. However, having said that, I in my early years, not having such a big family as Dan, only one brother and a mother and a father, they too were trained to facilitate my immediate needs. They handled my immediate needs during my rehab training program uh, for the first six months of my life. But that is when we learned that it was appropriate in our case to separate caregiving from family and having kind of a Chinese wall there. Now, unfortunately, it does create a need for resources there to be able to make that separation, and that could be a motivating factor for people to start their own businesses, to have those resources. Having said that, I think family can provide the safety link necessary, in case things go terribly wrong, with facilitated help or contracted help.
4: But also, too, if I can uh, jump in, when we when we're looking at family members getting older, um, and I was the youngest of nine. Uh, my Both my mom and dad have passed away now. Uh, one of my sisters has passed away. And so as family members become older, they may not have the physical ability to perform that care. Um, and I guess I think it's very important to keep those two separate. I also went through a divorce because I think uh, what initially started off as my wife not providing care, um, unfortunately, caregivers, saw her as being a potential resource to provide my care. And so uh, I think part of the demise was that there was more uh, dependency on her to provide that care. And so intimacy and and other areas were compromised as such because you can't provide care one minute and then be
3: intimate the next. Jay, do you want to comment on that? Uh, Well, I I would, Um, Gordon, thank you. When I proposed to my wife, About six, seven years ago, before doing so, I asked her father for permission, just like the old-fashioned way. And I had made it very clear to him that I was seeking a wife, a friend, a lover, and a partner, not a nurse. And that reassurance gave him high hopes that he knew his wife wasn't being, you know, passed into solitude and servanthood. Beyond uh, Dan's observation that my parents, since we separated the role between family and caregiving, and I did leave home shortly after my first spinal cord injury for college and then never returning and becoming a homeowner, my parents' support and family support would, would surface in other very needed capacities. For example, my parents were just visiting a month ago, and my father was painting the white trim on the house for me. My mother was doing some of the gardening. And so there was other kinds of support and love and sweat equity that family can do without crossing the boundaries of intimacy and caregiving and uh, um, self-control of one's daily needs.
4: Touché. I think that's
3: a very important point.
4: And uh, as my father said before he passed, parenting never ends. In other words, uh, uh, they're there as a shoulder to cry on. They're there for moral support. Um, You know, obviously I wouldn't have achieved everything I've done without having that sound foundation of family at the beginning to uh, uh, provide you with the, uh, I guess, the core values of uh, how to succeed in, in life.
2: Let's roll what you've been saying. Into your experience of professional experience of giving advice. Here's my question to you What advice do you have for family caregivers caring for someone in the early stages of significant disability such as yours?
3: What advice do you give family caregivers?
2: JR first.
3: Well, to me, I think um, it needs to be understood that it's temporary that family is here to help fill the gaps, and that family shouldn't be end-all and be-all. Otherwise, the relationship of the family is on a pathway to destruction.
4: Dan? Uh, I would, yeah, I would concur with that wholeheartedly, in that uh, uh, if I could turn the clock back, um, I would say that we would try to separate family from caregiving as much as possible, Uh, as JR. alluded to, have them do more of the auxiliary things such as prepare meals or or whatever because that would be a more normal function of a mother and or slash uh, sisters or siblings. And then I think uh, in some circumstances, especially coming from a very large family and being the youngest and being doubted on to begin with, to then compound that with having a severe disability, I think there were some times where um, siblings may resent the extra attention that one would get uh, that they may not be receiving as a direct result of the severe disability.
2: Okay. Now let's ask about the advice you'd give to persons with significant disabilities at the early stages. Uh, the advice would be on working things out in a way that's best for the relations relationship between family caregivers and the person receiving care. Dan, what, what's your advice?
4: Sure. I, I mean, again, I think knowledge is power. Uh, find out as much information as you can, one, about your own disability, uh, how it's going to impact on uh, uh, on your activities of daily living, and then as such, try to formulate a plan that's going to enable you to um, live life to its fullest without or trying to minimize the amount of dependency on others. And then this way, as such, sisters can be sisters, brothers can be brothers, uh, you know, parents could be parents, and uh, as hopefully your relationship develops, you in turn can uh, become a parent yourself and or uh, provide the type of
3: parenting for others. Jayon? Well, Dan, in, in my opinion, is spot on. And, but... Every family and every individual is unique. It is about choices, it's about consequences, and about uh, rewards. And that while Dan and I have succeeded quite well by separating the families from daily caregiving and, and being able to maximize intimacy and our professional lives, I think that each individual going through this owes it to themselves, him or her, to find the best way to make these balances occur in their life to ultimately result in the greatest level of freedom, the greatest level of independence, and the greatest level of uh, self-sufficiency. Let's, uh, I,
2: uh, okay, Dan? Dan.
4: Well, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And as an example... Um, I have chosen to have a house in Arizona in the middle of 40 acres and the closest town is 20 minutes away. So your first perception is that you are isolated. Having said that, um, how long does it take you to travel in a metropolitan area from one end of the city to the other? It's about the same amount of time. And as such, if you look at it from that perspective, uh, despite having a severe disability, I am in a fairly remote area, and I'm able to uh, thrive, run a business, and as long as I have a computer and a telephone, I'm good to go. Similarly, my place in Canada is in a fairly remote area. It's in Huntsville, Ontario, which is about two hours north of Toronto, a very touristy area, but, again, very isolated. So uh, uh, those type of choices, as JR alluded to, um, I think can make a difference on maximizing quality of life. Right.
2: Now again, it's time for us to pay uh, to pay the rent, to earn our living and take a short break. Uh, this is Dr. Gordon Averley and my guests are Dan Thompson and Dr. J. R. Harding. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety channel. Stay tuned. We will be back.
5: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll free right now at 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. We some hard hitters. We some hard hitters. Hard hitting radio is a new kind of sports and entertainment show. Your hosts are NFL veterans Mark McMillan and co host Byron Evans. It's an hour of hater free radio every week. You'll Hear interviews with top athletes, celebrities, coaches, and fans. It's humor, hits, and conversation. Hard-hitting radio is on with McMillan and Evans. Listen Fridays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Sports Network. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You know, I need
1: someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests. Dan Thompson and Dr. J.R. Harding. Our topic is professionals with significant disabilities and how they balance health, caregiving, and career. Now, I'm going to ask a question that's based on this supposition, that you two, as individuals, are appointed by your governments to oversee the development of services for persons who do have to balance health, caregiving, and career, as you have done. So what are the things that you would propose and why? JR,
3: first. Well, um, the first thing would be uh, a comprehensive work training program for anyone who wishes to go from dependency and segue into the work world at any level that they wish, whether it's modified construction, education, an attorney, uh, perhaps a certified rehab counselor, or a a policy developer. So to have a unique workforce ability that would subsidize education and training with the expectation of them going to work so the people who were sponsoring this uh, 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 job training activity had a return on investment. That would be my first step.
2: Okay. Let me ask, um, I'll come back to you on that particular point for your second step, but let me ask Dan now his first step.
4: Well, I I think we already have a plan in place in the province of Ontario uh, through the Ministry of Health, and it's administered by the Centre for Independent Living in Toronto, and it's called Direct Funding. And what they do is that the uh, budget uh, and amount provide that to individuals themselves, and in turn, instead of using a government agency or a third party to hire, direct, and uh, enforce attendant care, they actually provide the money themselves to individuals. It's up to them to account for the money, to budget, to do their own recruiting, and uh, to put the infrastructure in place to improve their quality of life. And I think that um, public policy, I think, is more empowering for the individuals. I think it uh, gives them the freedom to... Uh, pick and choose the attendance that they want, where otherwise they may be uh, delegated to them. And uh, I think it's, quote-unquote, a more normal way of hiring your own care.
2: So are you saying to me that you would want to see that kind of program extended to other parts of Canada? Would that be your election platform?
4: For sure. And they show that it's a cheaper model. Uh, You take out the middleman and that uh, you're not hiring a third party to administer the funds. And uh, I, I think uh, it's a, uh, a more economical and a uh, more efficient way of uh, allowing people with disabilities to maximize their quality of life. Right,
2: JR, please tell us about the second plank in your political platform.
3: Well, the second plank, then would be obviously an extension of what Dan was just speaking of. But I would add a caveat to the independent uh, living resources necessary. One, I would certainly subsidize the uh, caregiving role people have, having a cap on it, whether that's $20,000, $30,000. And many states have it. Florida just now began something like that. But it is limited to only those who are willing to work or trying to work. So I would add a a uh, kind of a responsibility piece that you're not entitled to it unless you're um, are willing to put in some sweat equity for it.
2: Dan, what do you think about the concept of sweat equity here?
3: Well, sure. I mean, uh, uh, it's the same thing
4: I talked about before. as a tough love. In my profession, what I do as a registered RIA professional is to ensure that the purse strings are tight and that people get what's reasonable and necessary and not what's greedy and over-the-top. And so uh, the premise you know, of direct funding is to provide individuals with a budget that will enable them to direct and hire their own care to improve their quality of life. But I don't think in any subsidy, whether it be through insurance dollars and or through government subsidies, uh, should be a, a gift or a bursary it should be uh, based on need to allow them to improve their quality of life.
3: you Well, uh, Gordon's, uh, Gordon, uh, Gordon uh, Dan is quite correct. And some of the fundamental flaws in some of the pilots or state programs in America now is the beneficiary does not have that sweat equity component to it and nor are they completely free to hire and fire their own caregivers. They generally have to go through a approved Medicare or Medicare program, and then sometimes those individuals are not accountable to the person needing the care they're accountable to the company they actually work for.
2: yeah, let me just pursue you on a what's perhaps a bit of a tricky question, but it's this that you both in, you, in your ways, referred to situations or individuals who, I'm going to say, might not be as motivated as you have been and as others like you are. What, what would you see in your platform as, as an approach to people who perhaps are not as motivated as we, you, might think they should be? A J. first?
3: Well, you gave me the challenge. It's always easier to go second on a hot potato. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs>
3: um, well, I would set it up, and in, in be, being a, a bureaucrat now, putting on the, bureau, the hat of being responsible to the people's money, that all uh, God-fearing uh, individuals believe in care of fellow man. And I think it would be appropriate to have the... Policy established as an initial setup to the resources will be available, and you will be required to do some community service. You will be required to get out into the community to experience the world and make that person move up a continuum of sweat equity or, re, or return on investment for the people's dollars. And then, like all choices, should you not should you choose, not that you're not capable, because some people truly are not capable of gainful work or volunteerism. That population needs to be kept separate, and all of those who are competent at contributing should be required to. Dan, you're...
4: Well, I, I, I don't think you can legislate or force anybody to do anything they don't want to do. I think what you can do, though, is put policies in place to provide them with an incentive to get out work. So, for example, if they're going to go on the direct funding program, um, then really they would have to be uh, a go-getter to begin with to have the initiative to hire, fire, um, maintain and recruit their own attendants. Uh, basically manage the budget, the whole bit, and then obviously use those same skills to go out to the community to hopefully get a job, to uh, hopefully be full participants in society. But I don't
3: think you can legislate and force them to do it. No, what, no, Dan, but you're, you, what you raise, though, is the in, the incentive becomes the choice. If they don't choose then ultimately their care still becomes part of the state, and that in itself is a choice. True. yep.
2: You agree with that, Dan? Uh, For sure. Yeah. Okay, let's take this a little bit further. Um, You you two, if I may put it this way, are role models um, for many other people. Um, What about the other way around? Are there, for example, with... Um, kids who are still in school opportunities do you see for them to work with people like you who are moving ahead um, getting a long way but still need some input and some help what what do you see is do you agree that there may be some opportunities there and if you do what are they going to be JR first
3: well I'm not certain I understand your question correctly so allow me to answer it this way I believe I am inspired by younger people coming up the food chain today. And those are individuals with and without disabilities. I was blessed or recognized by a local university creating the JR Leadership Award. And all it states is anybody's entitled to be honored with this award who balances their own interpersonal drama and then chooses to exceed in the world and excel in that world. And one of the first recipients of this award was a young lady who had a car accident at age 13. Physically, there was nothing wrong with her. Mentally, there was nothing wrong with her as a result of that car accident. But her entire family died in that accident she was the only one to survive and despite that psychological baggage this person had a 4.0 and volunteered 30 hours a week in the community with uh, migrant farm workers that's inspiration to me and I think that's kind of exemplary uh, hope that the world is moving in the direction we like it
2: and if I may just add a word, it's moving in a two-way direction between people with uh, significant disabilities and people in the community who are wanting to see, to be helpful and see good things happen. Dan, what do you think?
4: Well, I think, again, uh, I've said it over and over throughout the program that knowledge is power. And as a young person, uh, if they're presented with the information on what it takes to set up their own business to... Um, versus, say, working for someone if they are provided with knowledge and information as to uh, what it takes to direct their own care if they have a disability. Uh, I think from there, uh, more seminars, education, Uh, I know of other individuals who go into schools, talk to uh, young people, and I think, uh, especially with today's day and age with uh, the Internet and uh, other forms of information, I think uh, the young people today have more knowledge and power. Than we ever had uh, when we grew up. And so, as such, hopefully they'll make informed choices to, uh, again, improve their quality of life and live life to its fullest.
2: So, what I'm really reading into your answers um, is this that this two way flow between people who have a challenge and people who are open and willing to help with the challenge creates a dynamic that, in some, maybe many instances, is going to be helpful in this role model notion, this idea that if we see people doing good things, we're going to want to do them ourselves. Now, time um, has come to an end for this show, and I want, first of all, to say thank you to our listeners. And you've heard some very interesting and I think very well articulated and perhaps a little bit sensitively um, expressed questions of difficulty, Um, please would you email us with your comments and questions. Uh, The email address is um, in one of the um, uh, announcements that you'll hear. I want to say thank you to our guests, Dan Thompson and Dr. J.R. Harding, persons with significant disabilities. Thank you both for sharing your experiences of building successful, independent careers while balancing health and caregiving, and family caregiving. You've pointed to changes that are needed if more people with significant disabilities are going to be successful in realizing their full potential for successful, independent, self-sufficient lives. Our next episode is about family caregivers and fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet,